Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. To mark the much-anticipated arrival of BuzzFeed in Australia, the Walkleys hosted a special Storyology satellite event on the art and science of sharing. The event began with a keynote address from Vice President of BuzzFeed, Scott Lamb, followed by a Q&A with the host of Media Watch, Paul Barry, and a panel discussion with news.com.au's Melissa Hoyer, 9MSN's Hal Crawford, and The Guardian Australia's Catherine Viner. Scott Lamb was introduced by the Federal Secretary of MIA, Christopher Warren. So before I hand you over to our speakers, I want to say thank you and congratulations to BuzzFeed's Simon Carrar, Scott Lamb and Alice Sue. Uh, I want to thank Paul Barry, who uh, is going to moderate today's uh, discussion. Uh, he's assured me it's going to be sufficiently efficient that it won't require any government inquiry uh, into his behaviour. And after that, you'll be able to meet our panellists. First of all, Catherine Viner from Guardian Australia. I think Catherine's kind of like um, uh, perhaps uh, Abel Tasman to BuzzFeed's Captain Cook uh, in Exploring Australia. And then we've got Melissa Hoyer from news.com.au and from 9MSN, Hal Crawford, who perhaps is the local or the modern-day Burke and Wills, the local explorers uh, in this uh, space. So I want to thank all of them for uh, coming, uh, and hopefully it'll end better than that did, of course. Um, thank you uh, to all for uh, joining us. Uh, now, would you please welcome BuzzFeed's Vice President of International, Scott Lamb. Uh, Scott's responsible for BuzzFeed's international growth and expansion. Uh, he joined the company in 2007 as a senior editor, became managing editor in 2009, and was promoted to editorial director in 2012. Uh, in 2011, Gizmodo named him one of the internet's most viral people. So on that scary note, please welcome Scott Lamb. Yeah, being named one of the most viral people on the web is a real double-edged sword. Um, my girlfriend's parents were very confused and worried uh, about what that might have meant. Um, thank you so much, Chris, for the introduction. And I really liked what you were saying about the sort of exploratory nature of where we are right now in, in the web. And that's kind of what I want to talk to, to all of you today about. Um, I had to put it in somewhat of a list form because it's BuzzFeed. I want to talk about sort of four myths that I think we need to move past this year in journalism. And uh, I know that the, th the topic today is, is media in Australia. It's something that I know a little bit about, but I'm certainly no expert and I'm not going to come here and lecture you about the media scene in Australia. I think that some of the things I want to talk about are true worldwide and they're true very specifically for what's happening right now in the digital space. Um, so before we get too far into that, I assume most of you are familiar with BuzzFeed, but I want to do just a really quick overview for those of you who maybe don't know it so well. Um, we are a media company for the social age. We're a social news and entertainment website. Um, right now, we're at about 130, over 130 million uniques uh, worldwide per month. Um, we have 75% of our traffic comes via social. So for us, the social web is really the front page of our website. Um, about half of that is mobile, and that's, a, I think, a growing number. I think that's a, a global trend for a lot of different media organizations. Really especially true for us, I think, uh, because so much of our traffic is social and so much of social traffic is now mobile, uh, it makes a lot of sense that that be the case. Our readership skews a little towards the young side. About 60% of our readers are between the ages of 18 and 34. 
Um, as far as what the company itself is, we're now over 400 people. Um, we cover a very wide range of, of news and information online. It's not just cat gifts. I know it's hard to keep that in mind, but we have, uh, you know, we have tech, tech coverage, we do politics, we do sports news, we do fashion coverage, we do music. We have a video team as well, which has just started in, in Los Angeles. Um, and we have now offices around the globe. Sydney is a new, brand new edition just as of today. Um, the, the video department is another thing that we're building up in a huge way in 2014. They're based in Los Angeles. They are one of the biggest um, original content networks on YouTube. It's a very exciting space for us, and this is a, a, a new area that BuzzFeed just started pushing into in the last year and a half. Um, to talk just very briefly about the history of BuzzFeed, this is kind of how the, the web developed, at least in our point of view. In early days of the web, you had portals. That was the necessary, really for a lot of people, the only way that they interacted with the internet. Um, AOL, Yahoo, and others were really huge. This was how people got online originally. And went from there to search. And for many years, search was the dominant, dominant form of, of people, the way that they thought about the internet. And I know, um, probably for a lot of you, you remember the period in journalism when it was a lot about SEO. Um, I think this was a very, very difficult period. I was at salon.com um, back in, this must have been 2003. We did a training on SEO, and it drove all of the editors absolutely crazy, that now they were supposed to reformulate their headlines to pack it full of certain words, to trick machines into sending people to their articles. Totally maddening. Um, I think very happily for everyone, for journalists and readers as well, we've moved into a new era, and that's the era of the social, um, the social web. And this is kind of where BuzzFeed has always lived, and kind of this is what we're most interested in. Um, the, the issue for, for BuzzFeed, and I think for a lot of people who um, make content for the social web, and also for social web platforms like Facebook, uh, we've had since those early, early days, really since the very, very beginning of the web, one particular enemy, uh, a very insidious, dangerous enemy that's, you're, you're gonna be surprised, but it's, I think, done in a lot of ways as much damage as good. And of course, I'm talking about cats. <laughs> um, cats are wonderful. <laughs> they lend themselves so well to social media um, and especially animated GIFs. There's a problem with cats, the cat problem. And cats have become this shorthand for how people talk about the internet. Um, I mean. I don't want to belabor the point, but almost literally every article about BuzzFeed in the U.S. mentions at some point that we're known for, for cat gifts, and this is true, and we're very proud of that. We're known for a lot of other things as well. I think that when people talk about cats, they want to, they want to dismiss the internet in some way. So the cat problem is that we all love cats, but they're also, they're also keeping people from taking the internet seriously. Um, and this is kind of a funny way of putting it, but it's true for BuzzFeed, it's true for a lot of other um, web platforms as well. I know that. YouTube is very interested in trying to figure out how to get people to look at their platform and think of it as a lot more than just viral videos of people falling off bikes. Um, they have a whole initiative to talk about a lot of the really interesting, serious content that's being made on, on YouTube. You have a lot of original creation that's going in. There are a lot of documentaries made on YouTube. People don't even know about that. They just see the things, that the viral videos that people pass around. I think that Facebook's recent um, interest in retooling their algorithm to show people more news and less um, sort of meme -y stuff on Facebook is also this notion they're growing up. Um, the web is growing up, and we're all growing up with it. We want to see more weighty content in addition to the fun stuff that, that we're used to. So um, I think that the myths that I'm, I'm going to talk to kind of underlie the, the cat problem. There are different various ways that I think that the media, um, as well as consumers, when they're thinking about the web, they want to distance themselves from it, and they have some certain criticisms. So one of those, and I think this is probably near and dear to a lot of the hearts in this room, 
is this myth that nobody wants to read long or difficult content online. So the idea of, of online content, people often say it's for people with ADHD and very short attention spans. If you want to put up a video, it should be under three minutes long. Anything longer than a tweet is going to get lost in the sea of information. And I think this is totally false. I think this is absolutely untrue. It's an untested assumption that has been carried over from the earliest days of the web. And happily, BuzzFeed recently has been testing out this notion. We are a very experimental website, and we've been doing experiments. Um, a recent one was this piece. Um, this is the first piece from the Michael Hastings Fellow at BuzzFeed, Gregor Johnson. Um, you know, a very thoughtful, critical, engaged writer. I mean, kind of the perfect model of what you want out of a journalist, someone who's very thoughtful, very serious, and knows his business very, very well. This was the first piece he wrote for BuzzFeed. It was on a very particular part of um, American legislation that happened in the days and weeks after 9-11. It was a short 60-word document that basically laid the groundwork for the war in Afghanistan, drone strikes, and a lot of the things that the country is still dealing with today. No one had ever really written a story about this particular piece of legislation, despite the fact that it was one of the most important things that had happened in, in the post-9-11 period. So we put up this, this article. It was over 10,000 words long. Very, you know, very rich, very deep, very well reported. It got 250,000 views. Um, that's a lot of readers for something that's that long. And also, most of those were not people who were coming to BuzzFeed.com. It would have been very difficult to find this on the front page of our website. This was being shared by people who were interested in it because there's a great, I think, real need amongst readers to get this type of information. Um, another recent story example uh, along these lines. This story we had a couple weeks ago about a guy buying a house in Detroit for $500 and fixing it up. Obviously, the problems in Detroit mirror a lot of the other economic problems in the United States. It's a, it's a city that sort of has become um, almost a poster child for some of the economic crisis. This was his personal story about trying to do something different. Similarly, 6,000 words, 1.4 million views, 50% of those from social. I mean, it's just incredible. You wouldn't think that people would want to sit through and really sit down and read something like this, specifically on their phones. That's not the conventional wisdom for how the web works. But I think that we're seeing that it's very, very different. Um, another thing about these stories is we see the average time on BuzzFeed normally is about five and a half minutes for a, for a user. That doubles when it comes to these long pieces. So that shows that people aren't just sort of scanning the top and then sharing it with their friends because they want to look like they're cool and thoughtful and well-read. They're spending time on the page and really reading the whole article. Um, in the, in the US, we often refer to this type of content as long form, and our editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, last week wrote a piece kind of rebutting the notion of long form as sort of a, a ghettoization of content. He said, you know, the editor in, uh, in uh, the online world loses the excuse or limit of having geometry of columns to make choices easier. He or she must instead be able to convincingly explain what belongs in the story and what doesn't. Writers loom the same crutch. And this part, I think, is the most important, which is why I put it in bold. <laughs> the story should be as long as it should be. And I think that that is kind of the key thing about what it is that BuzzFeed is doing right now, is we, are, we have a team of experts who are reporters and writers and also make cat gifts, but their job is to match the story that they want to tell to the format that they want to tell it with. And I think that the web has provided us with a lot of new and interesting tools for telling stories that I think all journalists should be embracing. It doesn't need to just be a long article. Sometimes you want it to be a video. Sometimes you want it to be a list. Um, you know, this was a, a list that our, our editorial director, Jack Shepard, who's here in the audience today, put together. And, you know, and this was one way of telling a particular story. Jack thought he might illustrate it with animated GIFs. Sure, that's, that works. There's a, an old a British hack named William Shakespeare who had the same idea. He wrote Hamlet. Obviously, 
the play was a great way to tell that story as well. It worked, um, but you know, maybe had Shakespeare had the web at his disposal, he would have gone another direction. Obviously, that would have been a huge loss for humanity. <laughs> it's a good thing that that's not the way it went. Um, but there are other examples of this type of story um, where you, you can see how big a difference it makes to match the, the, the thing that you're trying to say with the format that you're trying to say it in. Um, I'm not trying to pick on the Telegraph, but this is a very common story that a lot of news organizations would run. It's uh, you know based on the Economist's intelligent unit data about best cities in the world to live in, kind of had a, a nice slideshow, show some beautiful pictures. I think stories like this always do really, really well. Last week, or two weeks ago, we had an editor who basically take, took the exact same idea. Let's talk about the best cities in the world. She put it in a quiz format. Um, so the, the quiz question was, what city should you actually live in? I suspect that many of you in this room have taken this quiz. <laughs> Can I see a show of hands? I'm just really curious. Not bad. Um, yeah, that thing got, it was 18 million views in a week and a half. Um, you know, and again, this isn't because we put a lot of promotion behind it or paid for it. Uh, we didn't do a PR push about, hey, look at our new feature that just came out. This is entirely from people like yourselves taking this quiz and then saying, oh, cool, I got Paris. I guess that means I'm cultured. Um, you know, or, <laughs> or I, got, I got Portland and I guess I'm a hipster now. Like that, that's, it became a, a real conversation starter. And you know, we, this was a viral hit that even for, for BuzzFeed standards was pretty unusual. It, it took off faster and farther than we've seen a lot of things. And I think it's because people, you know, they like to talk about location and that they want to live. It's a very personal identity. Um, but they hadn't seen it done in exactly this format before. So that was a long way of saying, yeah, I think people read long content on the web. I think we need to, we need to jettison that notion from our, our vocabulary. Second, uh, paying attention to metrics leads to, automatically leads to the lowest common denominator. This is a thing that I, I remember also feeling when I was at salon.com back in uh, sort of the early 2000s. A lot of the people at that website had come from a newspaper background, were very skeptical about metrics. They weren't shared widely in the company. And the feeling was that if you started to write for page views, then you were, you know, you're going to go straight towards nip slip land immediately, and it's a kind of a one-way trip. Um, I think that's really that's really unfair. So I, th I think what, what people are are really talking about when they say that they're talking about this really bad word that I hate, and the word is clickbait. Um, there's a great comic. I don't know if you guys know this XKCD. They do a lot of stuff about web culture, and they had this hilarious one called 20th Century Headlines Rewritten to Get More Clicks, and it was great and very true. Um, so six Titanic survivors who should have died instead of the Titanic sinks. Um, or a, a more recent example, you won't believe what people did to the Berlin Wall. <laughs> um, and I understand the criticism. It's there for a reason. There are, uh, you know, there are a lot of sites on the web, and sometimes people accuse BuzzFeed of doing this, who amp up a story or focus on maybe an inconsequential or non-central part to it just to get clicks. The issue is, at BuzzFeed, we don't care about clicks. Clicks aren't a metric that are important to us. They're not important to our editors. They're not particularly important to our, to our business model. What is important to us is shares, and shares are way better than clicks. They're just so much better. You can trick people into clicking things. You can write a salacious headline. You can tell them it's one thing, and it turns out it's, it's another. The problem is, with, with shares, there's, there's no tricks. You can't trick people into sharing something. They either come to your content, they have an emotional reaction to it, they really like it, they laugh, maybe they cry. Something happens and they have to share it with other people. So you can't fake that. There's not a, a keyword, an SEO version of optimizing for sharing that exists. It just, it's not possible. The good news is, because of that, your readers will become 
your, will, will share your work and really your readers become your model of distribution, which is great. That's why for us, social is the front page. If we can create content that readers come to and share with their network, that is how our content will spread. Um, so for us, it's really, really important that our editors be thinking about um, sharing because that's, that's the metric that matters to us. And I think that you can actually learn to get better at sharing stuff. I think that's why BuzzFeed has been able to take 10,000 word articles, 6,000 word articles, and make them work on the web. It's not because we write a super fancy headline. We write a really good headline that you know, tells you what you're gonna get. But I think it's also about the way that we've learned to approach content over years and years now of doing this. Um, this is just an example of a post that our, our editor Simon did, uh, 33 ways to know you're Australian, in case you were confused. Um, and the, the red here is our, our uh, measure of social traffic. So that's really all traffic that's coming from outside of BuzzFeed. The blue is seed traffic, it's people going to the front page, coming in through some other one of our platforms. Um, and I think that basically the way that, that our editors think about each piece of content is launching a little experiment. You know, it's a little notion, it's a small idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this about, about being a ways you know you're Australian and see if it hits and resonates with an audience. And the only way you can know if it hits and resonates is to then go back and look at the traffic and see where it shares. So Simon can, can log in and immediately see, oh look, you know, I got 95,000 views on Facebook. Facebook likes this kind of content. If I wanna do you know, an identity-based piece about what it means to be an Australian, this is a good format to do it in. Um, so don't be afraid of metrics. Myth number three, social media is merely a box you need to check. Um, we see this a lot and I think that it's uh, an understandable notion that this would be the way it is, that somehow social media is a, is a process that comes at the end of something else. I think one way of looking at it is sort of like this, you have an idea, really impressed with yourself, you write your cool article, you've maybe got a really interesting headline, then you tweet, and then it's lasers and robots, everyone loses their minds. This is really not how traffic on the web ever, ever works. You can't divorce each of these pieces of the process. So at BuzzFeed, we, um, you know, it's inherent to the way that our editors work that they think about this. Um, so I'm gonna go very quickly through, for you, those of you who've seen Jack Shepard's much, much better presentation, you're gonna recognize some of these slides, but I just wanna talk really quickly about how we do make content. The main thing is to remember that you're a human being writing work for other human beings. Um, I think that gets lost sometime in the work that we do. So have a heart, make content for people, and think a lot about emotions. That doesn't mean you have to pander, but it does mean you need to recognize what the emotional core of the story is that you're making. I think that's how people are gonna, gonna react to it. Um, there was a, a study in 2012 in the New York Times, kind of breaking, 2010, breaking down their most shared list. Um, and it's, it identified four key emotions on that list of, of what people were reacting to. One of them is awe-inspiring, so make something that just people cannot believe what they're seeing. They feel like they're better human beings. They've got their faith in humanity restored. Emotional, something that's, that's, that maybe is a really sad story that plays on um, some of the, the challenges of being human. Uh, a positive story, something that you just can't believe how great this is. You wanna share it with people because it makes you feel better about the world. A surprising story, something that you just really can't believe, it flattens your ears right back on your head. And if you can really do it, you can, and you, you really reach into that emotional core of people and touch them in some special way, if you're really, really lucky, occasionally you can get them to say, aw. <laughs> I should have put this picture like five different times in this, in this talk. Um, 
So, uh, you know, we, we talk about people sharing. Um, sharing is, a, is actually a thing that, you know, is, is a physical motion on the web. It's not just an, a notion. It's a thing that people usually have to click some sort of button to do. The most popular form of sharing online, obviously, is the Facebook like button. It's interesting that it's, it's the like button, right? It doesn't seem like it's an accident that it's not the hate button or the meh button. Um, but like means a lot of different things, right? It doesn't always mean that you actually really love this thing or that you agree with it. Sometimes it, it does mean that you want, to, you want to express your support for a particular position or, or idea, which is definitely the case in, in this piece. Sometimes it means, hey, I'm pretty smart and funny. Sometimes it means, hey, this is me. I'm sharing a piece of, of myself with you. Um, Jack Shepard, our editorial director, unfortunately is vegan. So in his world, um, and based on his life decisions, this is a good way of him being able to share part of his identity with, with his friends, which is great. And he's not alone. Um, so the last myth that I want to get to is that social content is somehow easy, trivial, and meaningless. And we get this a lot at BuzzFeed, again, because people typically think of the site as just running, is only running lists. Um, but there are a couple of issues there. First of all, I, you know, we didn't come up with the list format. It's not like <laughs> it was just waiting around for BuzzFeed to invent. One of the oldest forms of, of humans categorizing information, right? Um, so a lot of important things that actually affect our lives on a daily basis are all, already in lists. Um, you know, there are certain, you know, certainly fun and interesting and sort of uh, more social lists that BuzzFeed puts together, uh, this being a, an awesome recent example. Um, but it's also, I think, a way that you can approach almost any news story if you feel like you have the right, the right angle. This is an, another post from one of our editors here in Australia, Jenna. Um, it was about, you know, a recent story where activists discovered that that um, asylum seekers weren't ha having access to, to tampons in a way that would be, you, know, that you would think that they would be. Uh, it was really unfair, seized upon by uh, you know, an activist group, and they, they put together this really interesting campaign. So it's really, I mean, this is a pretty central issue in Australia, right, immigration. Um, this was exploring an aspect of that. Jenna could have certainly written an article, um, just had a headline and, and written a lot of text. But especially because this particular story played out a lot on social media, it made sense to do it in a visual style in a list. And she just went through some of the examples of, um, of what people responded to on, on Twitter and Instagram and, and on Facebook. Um, so I think that's an example, uh, just a, you know, a recent example from BuzzFeed of a story that could have been, again, just a, a normal sort of news story. Um, and she approached it, and I think, in a very unique way and shows really the power of, of using lists as a, as a storytelling tool. Um, and on the last note, I just kind of want to try and get across the point that also, writing a really good cat list is harder than you think. Um, I defy anyone here <laughs> to just sit down and write one. They're not that tricky. I mean, they are, they are quite tricky. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I know that this is a room full of people who are thinking very hard about these particular issues. And I think um, for many of the reasons that, that Chris laid out before I, I talked, things are very exciting in Australia right now. I think there's a lot of new initiatives. There are things that are maybe not working out as well as people hoped. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of trial and error um, in this period. But I think that just like in the U.S. where there has been this shift, really, especially even in the last couple of weeks, if you've been following the news there, to a place where digital media is no longer uh, sort of on the margins of the news. It's really in the center. I think this is where the conversation is happening, and that's not going to change anytime soon. So um, you know, keep these myths in mind when, people, when you're thinking about your, your own work. I think it's certainly uh, going to be interesting to see how, uh, how the landscape changes over the next couple of years. Um, and I'm really looking forward to our, to our panel after this. So thank you so much. Um, look, 
I was particularly um, excited by the 10 ways to make the ABC more patriotic, which uh, BuzzFeed was running <laughs> this week, which I, I thought was very funny. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that want to ask questions, I know, but let, if I may start, um, why are you coming to Australia? How many people are you going to have as journalists here, and what are they going to do? We're coming to Australia because I think the landscape here is really great for, for BuzzFeed um, because there is, there's not a lot of digital-only media that exists in Australia right now. Um, beyond that, from the earliest days of the site, we've had a reasonable re readership in Australia. I think Australians um, are very web-savvy, they're very curious about things, they like to read a lot online. I think that's definitely true, and so BuzzFeed has been has had a, a certain core readership from the earliest days. The, the sort of the national um, sense of humor, uh, you know, about oneself and about, about others as well, is really meshes well with the site. Why do you actually need to be here? What do you, what do, you do here that you can't do from Los Angeles or New York? Or we definitely, we, we could. What are you, you going to have in local, terms of local content? Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't write identity-focused posts. We couldn't write things about Australia and have them ring true if we didn't have a local crew that were doing them. I mean, if, for, if we're going to be writing content for Australians, it needs to be written by Australians. So we've, um, you know, we've expanded recently internationally to, to London. Um, it did a similar thing there. We started with a very small team of three people. There's now 15 editors there. Um, all of the, mo most of the content that runs on the UK side is written by them. We're also expanding into foreign language markets, but we're seeing a similar thing there. We've done some stuff in translation. It just doesn't, doesn't resonate with readers in the same way that locally written content would. So we're starting out with three editors here. Um, you know, they're going to be very experimental generalists writing a little bit on news, a little bit on culture, a little bit on cats, um, hopefully a lot on quokkas. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. It's going to be very experimental, but I think that there's a, there's a great opportunity here. I'm going to ask one more, then I'm going to throw it open. Um, the examples you gave are those two serious articles. Yeah. I'm sure there are plenty more. The Hastings Fellow article, which 250,000 people viewed it, or UBS or whatever. And the Detroit House, 1.4 million. You've got 80 million people looking at the city quiz. Are you really going to want to do those serious articles? And what is your business model? How do you actually make money? What, what are your sort of incentives in terms of getting as many people as possible to yeah. share? So, um, you know, we definitely know that we can't compare, uh, you know, an 8,000-word article to a quiz about what city you can live in. Um, even the, the potential audience for those things is just a total uh, a factor, a number of, uh, just a huge factor of difference. Uh, we think a lot about traffic, um, not as a measure of uh, necessarily of quality. We're very interested in people sharing things, but also we know that there are buckets for different types of content. So if you're writing about sport, you're writing about a particular team, the potential audience for that is really limited to people who you know, care about that sport and either hate or love that particular team. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as nearly as wide as a, as a piece like the, the quiz about where you should live, which pretty much almost anyone could have a response to. So we keep that in the back of our minds. We, don't, we, don't, we definitely don't um, rank them against each other in terms of total traffic. In terms of the business side... Um, you don't have an incentive to go for the highest number of shares? Isn't that what, how you make more, you make more, more shares, more money? Um, our teams do very, very different things, and some of the people on BuzzFeed are very interested in sharing, and not just because it's good for the site. They like, they're, they're like little viral scientists. They like to make things that people share. That's what they do. Um, news reporting is, is a slightly different thing, and I don't, I, I don't think that we think that it can't get traffic, but we don't demand that it do. Um, in terms of our business model, our, our, the way that BuzzFeed makes, makes money is we have uh, social advertising, which uh, actually our chief revenue officer is here in the audience and did a, did a panel on earlier today. But the, the model isn't totally tied to page views in the way that a lot of other businesses are. Um, we, don't, we, don't do we don't do display advertising. We create content for 
for brands. So that, as long as that content itself is very, very good, I we guess get what paid. I'm saying is it's a huge incentive, it seems to me, for you to produce as many city quizzes as possible or as many things that are produce a fantastic amount of sharing, but that's essentially the way you make your money, whether you're putting out something sponsored content or whether you're trying to get shares for other reasons. Yeah, I think, but I think there's also an incredible incentive for us to make sure that when we write something that gets this 8,000 words about this piece of legislation that it gets as many views as it, sure. as it can as well. That's true for everything on BuzzFeed. Who has a question? have a, a question that's come in over Twitter actually saying um, that it is actually possible to fake shares. Um, so do you want to address that? Um, I guess there, there are services that you can, you can pay websites to have, that have bots and go and actually share things. Um, I guess that's true. Certainly not anything that we've ever been interested in um, because we, we do look at sharing a little bit as a measure of quality when we're actually trying to make stuff that people share. It's definitely not in our interest to fake those, those numbers. So, I mean, I guess you can fake things on the web. You can't, you can't actually trick human beings themselves into sharing it. Okay, we only have time for one more, apparently, and then we need to go to the panel. Hi, um, I noticed that there's a lot of graphics in your stories, obviously. Is that the responsibility of the journalist to do those graphics, or do you have a separate team to do that? Uh, we, we do have a separate team. We actually have kind of two separate teams, one that, that works on photos. Um, you know, we license photos from AP, Getty Reuters, various celebrity outlets. So there's someone who sort of manages all those relationships. We also have artists and illustrators that make original content um, just kind of on their own. But generally speaking, the model at BuzzFeed is very flat. Um, the, the writer is responsible for doing a lot of the work. They come up with the headlines. I mean, sometimes the, the editor will, will write a different headline, but come up with the story idea, the headlines, and they often do the illustrations as well. So everyone, the internal tool that we have at BuzzFeed makes it very easy to go in and, and quickly add pictures from our photo library to your, to your piece. Okay, panelists, can we have you up here, please? We have Hal Crawford um, from 9MSN, who is the editor-in-chief of 9MSN, print and digital veteran who began his career at the West Australian newspaper. He's also taught journalism at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Next to him, Melissa Hoyer, who is entertainment editor-at-large for news.com.au. He used to be on the Sunday telly in the telly. And a regular commentator on style and pop culture issues for shows like The Morning Show, Sunrise, Weekend Sunrise, Today Tonight. She has a powerful social media presence She's also part of the regular nightly panel show on politics and current affairs on Paul Murray, live on Sky News. And next to me here is Catherine Viner, editor-in-chief of Guardian Australia, deputy editor of The Guardian Worldwide. She joined The Guardian in 1997. She's worked as Saturday editor, features editor, weekend magazine editor, and writer. And she was part of The Guardian Australia team that won the Walkie Award for media storytelling in 2013. Now, look, I'm going to just run this um, as I see fit, but if you're out there and thinking, you'd like us to go in a different direction, in a lull, please shout out, because I'm not sure that you know, my interests will coincide with yours or ours will coincide with yours. So if you feel you'd, you, know, you want to go another direction, let's do it. Um, I guess the first thing I'd ask, I want to start with Catherine. Um, what do you think you have to learn from BuzzFeed? Anything? <laughs> well, so you were sitting there looking slightly, um, slightly um, perhaps unimpressed. God, that's my face, Paul. <laughs> 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 Not unimpressed, that's the wrong word. Um, 
Uh, of the no, cats, no. of the cats in particular. Oh, I'm just not a cat fan. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's interesting because BuzzFeed in the UK, which is fantastic and has completely sort of tapped into the national character, they're not that keen on cats either. I no. think it's just, just, we Brits just don't get cats. So you're right, I was a bit unimpressed by the cats. Right. But no, I think, I think, um, no, it would be impossible not to admire BuzzFeed and um, what they've achieved in such a short, short space of time. And I think what they've done is they really understand the web and how it works. But I think one thing they often don't get enough credit for is the fact that the reason it's so successful is that it's good quality. Yeah. It's really good. You know, I mean, they get, even if it's, some of it's fluffy, it's really good fluff. So you want to read it. Some of it's fantastic. You want to share it because it's really good quality. And, you know, that, who, what journalist wouldn't want to produce good quality work? It does um, back up the sort of model that you have and news.com.au have and Nine and Senate have, which is a model that does not go behind paywalls. I mean, paywalls make this basically impossible, don't they? Or they make it very, yeah. very hard to share. Yeah, we would never go that route. Yeah. What, what do you think, Melissa? Well, I mean, news.com.au isn't behind a paywall. Sure. So, um, so that is one extraordinary advantage. You know, the, the sort of stories that we, we run are certainly such a, a diverse bunch. I mean, you know, funny the cats. I'm not a cat fan either, so... <laughs> For the record, neither am I. Down with cats. We react purely, purely to our readers and to our consumers. As soon as they show an interest in a story we've just put up, wham, you know, we, we see those figures straight away. We know that they're loving or they're not liking a story, and then we'll either make a, you know, create another story, write another story, you know, with that same sort of content or within that, that content guideline, but take another tact. I, you know, I was thinking of a, a perfect example last night. We put up a piece about Ian Thorpe and, and his problems at the moment. But you know, this morning, you know, one of our guys got in and straight away took another tact. And instead of just repeating what had already been written and, and, and spoken about everywhere, he just took you know, another way and just said how you know, sports people, a lot of do, sports people do go through a depression after being you know, famous, blah, blah, blah. So just that, that pace and that, um, that spontaneity that you can achieve with um, digital news and the, the, the online space is certainly something that some, somewhere where like news.com really, really um, sort of nail it as do uh, other online digital news websites. Hal, do you, do you look at BuzzFeed and think, geez, these guys are doing stuff so much better than we are? Or do you feel... Do you I, feel mean, I, I look at it and I think, oh, that's great. Oh, gee, I wish we'd thought of that. But, you know, I'm sure that you look at the Australian BuzzFeed will look at news, they'll look at Guardian, they'll look at 9MSM and think the same. But it, is it in that? Is it in the framing of the story? Or is it in some sort of, you know, backroom that you've got which is pumping it out in some way? Is it the framing of the story, essentially, do you think? What, what I would say about... Um, I really admire BuzzFeed mm. and I think they're doing a great job. Uh, but Scott's business model is just one. And it's actually quite specific that the native advertising build so that they don't care about page views per se, they care about social lift and true. Um, Native so, advertising yeah. being what? A, a story that is sponsored and contains mentions of a particular product? Yeah, is so uh, these guys can explain it, but it, it's a word for you know, sponsored content. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's not actually, uh, your revenue isn't directly related to your page view traffic. But it's presumably related to your share traffic, isn't it? 
Certainly true, but it's, it's related to the shared traffic of the actual piece of content that's been created specifically for the, for the advertiser. So we have a, just very quick, we have a separate creative team at BuzzFeed that creates all of the content for our, for our brands. They, you know, there's a, a Chinese wall between them and the editorial team, but the actual content, which is the thing that, the, that our, our clients are, are interested in when they come to BuzzFeed, is created by a totally separate team, and it's kind of measured on its own merits. Uh, I think the interesting thing, Paul, is when you compare the different business models, what I'm interested in strategically is, is there a ceiling to BuzzFeed traffic in terms of the size of the market? Because the tone can be very specific. Like, um, yes, a lot of people will love cats and support gay rights, but is that going to be 30%, 50%, 60%, 70% of the Australian market? And strategically, that's what you would think about. Does BuzzFeed actually make money at the moment? Yes. It does? Yeah. Um, well, I must say... <laughs> So <laughs> um, I'd love to have BuzzFeed skills selling my stuff. When I was on the, the Power Index, I used to write stuff and 4,000 people would, what, would read it if I was lucky. Um, but I'm less convinced by the stuff that you put out. I mean, as a journalist, I have some problems with this. Ten apps, this is, this is off BuzzFeed, 3 o'clock today. Ten apps you never knew you needed. 29 problems only Australians can understand. These two teenagers are master of tut tutting. Hypnotic hand dance you must see. 20 things female sports fans are tired of hearing. 21 stages of having a shoe addiction. 33 budgie smugglers you cannot unsee. You know, that's, that's straight off the top, the top of the website. Yeah. Now, I, I look at that and I think, what's this actually got to do with journalism? Well, I think what you're seeing is a very particular slice of what it is that BuzzFeed does. Um, that was the top of the website. Just really we don't run everything top, that we write on the, on the homepage even. You know, BuzzFeed publishes uh, something in the order of four or 500 articles every day. Only a certain percentage of those even flow through the homepage. Uh, you know, we understand that people who are coming to the homepage of BuzzFeed and actually going to BuzzFeed.com are looking, generally speaking, for a very particular type of story. Um, we require of our other writers that they're good at finding the audience for for the things that they've written about. So you know, we, we help them promote it as, as much as we can. But I think if you would come to BuzzFeed on the day that, that say, the, the, the 60 words that led to an endless war story ran, it would have gotten lost in the jumble of everything that was happening on the site. It's not going to stand up against um, you know, teenagers who are tut-tutting in the flow. But it is going to find its readership, and that's going to happen primarily via sharing. So I, you know, I understand why people often approach BuzzFeed with such skepticism, because they type in buzzfeed.com, they go there. The mix is always going to be somewhat along those lines. It's not like we're trying to suddenly make this, the homepage a super serious landing spot for news. But in terms of the percentage of stories that we create every day that are, in fact, hard-hitting news that are, have been written by a reporter that, and, and by any reasonable measure, would stand up well, I think, with, with the work of, of the teams of any of the people on this stage, um, they're there as well. They're just not maybe on the homepage. Do you, um, I mean, there is a, a newspaper, a traditional newspaper, Daily Mail Online, which has something like 160 million clicks per month for USBs per month. Um, it seems to me it's using the same sorts, of, I don't know about the same sorts of techniques, but the same sorts of stories that you are, um, you are after. Do you think that um, the lessons from BuzzFeed are that you should be putting out different sorts of material, or that just using different techniques to sell it? I think there's all different, sorry, is that on? There's all different sorts, I mean, it, you know, no one's saying that everyone's gotta be like BuzzFeed, everyone's gotta be like the Mail, or everyone's gotta be like the Guardian. There's all sorts of different approaches, I think. You know, what readers respond to is quality work yeah. in all sorts of different ways. Um, certainly, I think, you know, techniques of sharing, you know, everybody wants their material to be shared, everyone wants their material to be read, right? And in any way 
that can be done. But no, I, cer I certainly think there's different approaches. I mean, one of the reasons I think The Guardian's been so successful in Australia since we launched, and we only launched at the end of May, is that um, there seemed to be this hunger for serious content. We find that what's most read is our most serious stuff. I remember there was a day um, sometime in the winter when um, I was editing this sort of 13 points, 13 things that are wrong with, there's a list, 13, <laughs> 13 things that are wrong with Tony Abbott's direct action plan. And it was the evening, and I was just like, oh, God, you know, can I bear to put this in so intense? Can I put this up? It was, I think it maybe even was a Friday night. And I, and I launched it, and then I watched on our traffic tool. I just watched it go to the top in about half an hour. And I thought, my God, they, they, this is what this audience wants. They want analysis of policy done in a really accessible and interesting way. So it's, in fact, it's been our most serious stuff. And lots of our more fun stuff, we, some, you know, we get pushback on from mm. readers. They mm. want the serious stuff, and that seems to be from The Guardian what readers in Australia want from us. Mm. And it's delightful, really. Mm. Do you think if you had BuzzFeed people working for you, Melissa, you'd, you'd boost your well, traffic? I mean, I think we had this... It's interesting. We, we, I put down the list of our top ten stories from last year, um, and our, our number one absolute killer story was Miley Cyrus twerking. But that, of course, then was followed by the federal election polling day, followed by the explosions, uh, the Boston um, finishing line, then the Labor leadership, Carl Stefanovic stor storming off Channel 9. So it's this amazing sort of potpourri of, of, of serious news with lifestyle, with entertainment. I think, as you were saying, it can all sort of work together and, and you don't have to be seen as a light website because you do put stories that might talk about Carl Stefanovic storming off a, um, you know, today uh, um, a news set. So, you know, I, I think just we, we get, we hope, we get the combination right of hard news when it's, when it's breaking, when it's, when, it's, when it's hitting us, as well as our, our entertainment and lifestyle verticals. There was one um, article I saw there in one of your slides, Scott, 21 reasons why Carl Stefanovic is the greatest journalist and deserves the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Carl is very popular. <laughs> Is that a humorous piece? Uh, no, very <laughs> earnest. <laughs> Dead serious. Right. Send it to me. <laughs> I read it. <laughs> um, Paul, can I just pick up on yeah. something Melissa said there in terms of the mix uh, and the light and serious? And I was talking to Jack, um, Scott's colleague, the other day, and he's got a really great point about how that came to be a, an acceptable news mix. And, and his theory is that the constant presentation that people are used to in social feeds of personal information, news information, you know, wedding, invite, that sort of thing, uh, on their Facebook feed has reconditioned people's expectations of what a publisher can uh, do. And what we find, exactly like Melissa, is that the really high-rating stories are a, a mix of the incredibly inconsequential and the what everyone here would regard as very important. Yeah. So it's you really have to loosen up in, if you're, as a journalist, you just have to say, that's okay, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and are we talking mainly Facebook? I saw that on some of the figures, it was like 90, seemed to be 95% Facebook on that one example. Is Certainly that for general, us, or? Facebook is, is definitely by far the biggest um, refer for us is a very important website, but it's, it's why not, is, why hasn't always been the case. Why is it that rather than Twitter or Instagram or? Um, I, I think it's you know raw numbers. They're they're so much larger than either of those places. Right. Um, but 
the web is kind of in this constant state of flux, and that's true now, and, and maybe true in five years, or there might be a website that none of us have ever heard of that doesn't even exist now that comes mm. to be very powerful and a, and a source that people are, are sharing things. Who do you regard as your main competitors? Um, this is a question I, I always stumble with a little bit because BuzzFeed does so many different things. I mean, I guess, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we'd like to be thought of as competitors to, to The Guardian and The New York Times. Um, that's maybe us being very excited about our, our recent foray into, into journalism. Um, I think, you know, in some ways, we're also competitors of, um, you know, other forms of media, um, of, of television or, or movies. But we don't typically think a lot about, uh, about the competition, I think, because one of the great things about working on the web is it's this constantly expanding universe. So it's not, a, it's not exactly a zero-sum game where if BuzzFeed's getting traffic, we're, we're taking it away from somewhere else. There's just constantly a lot more traffic being generated. But in terms of revenue, it may well be a zero-sum game or a... Well, again, limited sum game, anyway. it's a limited sum game, but there are, there are very few other publishers that offer exactly the, the advertising product that BuzzFeed has. Um, I, I think that the, the team at BuzzFeed spends a lot more time educating people about what our offerings are rather than fighting for, other, for, for competition. Mm. Do you, all, um, you three also find that an increasing share of your traffic is going to mobile, to mobile devices? Yeah? Like what sort of share are we talking about? 35, 50%? Um, 25? I think 35 is Mary's in the audience. 35, Mary? Yeah. That's right, 50% 50 on the, 50 on the weekends because it's no, sports, a lot of well sports. Tablets as well as, yeah, smartphones. About, about half. Yeah. yeah. Ours is under half. Mm. Mm. And do you find the same sort of difficulty getting ad revenue from that? Because I'm reading in the American, American analyses that Google and Facebook and Pandora are picking up most of the mobile ad revenue. It's what and everyone's, perhaps everyone's working on, yeah, yeah. how to. Yeah make yeah. mobile work, yeah, financially. Yeah. What is it, that, do, do you think that what you do has, um, can pull traffic away, or does pull traffic away from newspapers, and particularly from newspapers with paywalls? Um, I, mean, I don't know that it's particularly what BuzzFeed does that, that does that, well, but I, people, I feel like the I'm social... Well, I'm not specifically suggesting, you know, yeah. you're, you're the villain, but... but I, I do think that, that paywalls sort of naturally have this dampening effect on sharing, um, and given that sharing is so massively important for us, I think it probably has a, a, an effect on their traffic for sure. Um, you know, at the same time, the, the New York Times has this kind of quasi-paywall system now, um, and their traffic, their, their stuff still shares very well. They mm. made it very permeable for sharing. Mm. So they've come up with, I think, a, a pretty interesting model for them. But I think it, it is true that the BuzzFeed model is not going to work for everyone. The New York Times model is not going to work for everyone. I think we're going to see a real uh, mix of, of models for people online. How long have you... Yeah. They, they cut you off from the web, you yeah. know, whatever else they do. And like you said, there's some permeable models that mean you can share and you can see a certain number of pages, but whatever else it does, and if, maybe if it makes lots of money for people, they're fine with it. But it it's cuts you off from the web, from all the action that's happening that day. Well, I don't think it does make much money. That's the problem. I mean, and and the, with newspapers, most of the money used to come from advertising, not depended on particular sorts of newspapers, but it used to come from advertising, and that's, that's disappeared. More than, more than half in the United States in the last five years, newspaper ad revenue. D how long have you been in business, and has your business model changed, and do you think it will change, be totally different in five years' time? Um, BuzzFeed was founded in 2006, so it's, it's not been around Pretty a terribly new. long time. Yeah. I mean, in web years, we, you know, that does make us quite old. <laughs> um, <laughs> very similar. Um, 
you know, initially we had no, no business model. I mean, it was a, it was a startup. Um, we had angel funding. We were just in this little office in Chinatown in New York City, and it was very experimental. We didn't know, you know, we had some ideas about things that we wanted to do, and we knew we were very interested in viral media. Um, but for a long time, there was no advertising on, on the site. Um, you know, we didn't really try to start monetizing until sort of mid-2010. Um, and were you in at the start? Uh, yeah, I was the, the <coughs> second editor, the fourth, the fifth employee there. So it's it's been a, it's been a wild ride. Oh, and what were your what were your aims in in starting it up? Well, I, at the time that BuzzFeed launched, I was still working for for Salon.com, like I, I mentioned, and I was one of the few like really interested in the web at this website, which was weird. You know, it was an, it was a, a publication that, like I mentioned, had come. A lot of the people had come from the newspaper world, and they weren't actually that interested in in online culture. Um, so I was watching it very closely and trying to figure out where the conversation was happening. And BuzzFeed, right from the very start, was very good at doing that. They knew kind of the topic of the theme of the day that people were going to be talking about specifically online, which in 2006 was much different than it is now. It was very divergent from what you'd see in the mainstream news. Um, but I, that's what was interesting to me. That's what drew, drew me to the site and what, what we were focused on at the beginning. Are you saying it's now converging, that what, what people are talking about is more than mainstream news? Yeah, you know, I think that the web culture and mainstream culture used to be two very separate things, and that's not so true anymore. You know, I think it's because most of us spend a lot more time online now. This is where Maybe we're that's because mainstream news has changed and we now read about cats. <laughs> <laughs> I think the two are definitely Everywhere. <laughs> influencing one another, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Look, can I, it's on a slightly different topic, but can I ask you three, um, one of the things that seems to me to be happening, just watching the media at the moment, is that um, we're getting more international sites, that everyone has all the international newspapers or media sites have an incentive to try and spread as far as possible. Got the Daily Mail coming in, Guardian's already come in, New York Times is talking about going more international. It seems to me we might be getting, we might in some ways benefit from that in Australia, we'll get more choice of media, but I think also we might get more globalization of the stories that we're, that we're treated to, that there really isn't much in, in the way of local stories. Do you, would you comment on that, any of you? Is anyone going to go into the community uh, issue? I don't, I don't think anyone around the world has truly cracked um, local reporting on a, in a digital business model. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone here knows about Patch and stuff like that, um, which hasn't been a, a great success in the US. But um, what's Patch? No, I don't. Oh, the um, the AOL. Uh, in sorry, yeah, the hyper. It's a it's an initiative to centre a local digital. Publish, right. publisher around a single editor, basically. Um, anyway, it's a, it was a massive investment. Um, and uh, someone here probably knows better than I, but I don't believe that it's worked. Um, the, that, that local news gathering and how to crack that up to the sort of the metro and then to the national stage is, you know, it's a, it's a great question that we could all talk a lot about. And I, I think we all probably think as editors, we're thinking untapped story source. Um, the, what's going to happen with BuzzFeed and uh, Daily Mail and so forth coming in, uh, I, I think Scott was actually downplaying the competitiveness of this environment. It is probably, well, I would describe it as insanely competitive and it's going to get more so. Um, something that I enjoy. Uh, everyone will be looking at the Nielsen figures and, and yeah. trying to work out where they are. And, and, and you know, that for me is a great game. It's certainly not going to get any less rough than it is at the moment, I would say. I think it's, it's important though for those, I mean, what we tried to do when we came here was as, you know, to be as Guardian, to be the Guardian, but to mm. be really Australian. So 
the, um, we made sure that all the reporters, I think bar one, and, all the, and nearly every um, commentator who writes for us is Australian. 95% of the voices on The Guardian Australia about Australia are Australian, because you don't want to hear foreigners talking about Australia. But, but you've got lots of in great international content from The Guardian mm. that we've created globally. So I think what we've done is, is you know, you've created a lot more international news on The Guardian Australia website than is you, you people are used to getting on these sites. But there's also a lot of Australian news, so I would really fight, you know, for what No, I think that's right. There. I mean, I think, you know, as a consumer, I would say I think that's right. I think you, um, you have become another local voice, yeah. as well as offering, you know, a portal to the world. But I, I just question whether other, the other international sites that come in will do the same. I think uh, certainly at news.com.au, we have a, um, a vast majority of locally created content. There's no, no question. Obviously, we do have access to our, you know, international affiliates, but really the majority of our content is generated by our journalists in our newsroom, which is, is a great thing. Yeah. Okay, I'm told questions. Who would like to ask the panel or well, Scott a question? We've got a couple here. Yeah, two questions. First, how defensible is BuzzFeed's business model? And second, what happens when Facebook start clamping down on you nicking photos from them? Rather from their users. Um, how defensible is it in, in terms of the? Um, I, I mean, I think very defensible. Are you, are you talking about whether or not people are confused about whether they're seeing an ad or or a piece of content? Ah, uh, <clears throat> I think we're in a in a in a pretty good position in that sense. It's very difficult, I think, to do the type of advertising that we do. It, it certainly takes a fair amount of experience. To do it, I think that we also have a, a technology that you know, we have a platform. BuzzFeed is a platform um, that would be difficult to replicate. Uh, we also have a position in the market, kind of the first mover advantage, that is going to be, I think, difficult for other sites to copy. Um, in terms of of Facebook, um, I, I kind of don't see a world in which they're going to start really clamping down on that. It's really good for them. You know, what BuzzFeed does a lot, a lot of the time is create content that people share on Facebook. The problem that Facebook has their version of the cat problem is that users have been on the platform long enough that they don't want to just see photos of their, their friends' kids or hear about what someone had for lunch. They want to also be able to consume media about the world. They want news. Um, and that's what we're making for them. So I think our interests are very aligned in that way. Um, at Vuki, what is BuzzFeed's ratio of branded to ad content versus editorial? So branded ad content versus editorial. I assume this is a question for Scott. Um, I don't even I don't even know how many campaigns we run on the site in a day. I mean, there we have so we have you know almost 200 editors now creating content all day long for the site. I think it's a very small percentage compared to the number of, of campaigns that we're running at a time. But I don't know the ratio offhand. My turn. Uh, Stephen Hutchins from the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, we spoke briefly about the profusion of new sites and um, news orgs opening up here, not to mention, of course, the Saturday paper that's from Murray Schwartz that's coming out as well. But of course, in the US, you've seen, um, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos by the Washington Post, you've seen um, Ezra Klein leave uh, the Washington Post, you've seen um, uh, Nate Silver join ESPN, you've seen Paul Amadia fund Glenn Greenwald. My question for the panel is, has the world gone mad? I mean, where's, where's, where's the money that, uh, to be made out of the media industry, both in Australia and, and in the US? Well, 
you describe the sound of so exciting? How can it just sound like, wow, things are happening? Yeah, yeah, it sounds brilliant. <laughs> Wish we had the answer to the, uh, the money thing. <laughs> the uh, question is why? Why now? Um, I mean, I, I, I think that it's a little bit of, of what I was trying to get out of in my talk, that it's 2014, the web has been around for a long time, it's reached this point of maturity. It's clearly the center of where I think me the media is headed and this is true, I think, in Australia as well as the States. Uh, you know, interestingly, when Ezra Klein joined Vox Media, one of the reasons he said he did it is because of their technology. You know, he has looked at how people create content online, and he knows, and I think this has been our experience as well, if you want to do it well, you have to have a great technology team at your disposal. Um, I think that the feeling right now in the, in the U.S. market, at least, is that there is this groundswell shift, that it's, you know, we're moving away from people just calling internet news cat videos to really this is where all of the exciting work is going to be happening in the, in the near future. So I, I'm with you. I, I saw that as a very exciting and hopeful thing. I mean, you know, also you know, BuzzFeed has been growing a lot in the last year. We're hiring journalists. Uh, I think all of the all of the publications that you named, they're going to there are jobs there like that should be a thing that we're all pretty excited about. Hi, Scott. Just had a question from Twitter. Um, with your native advertising, how is that differentiated on the site from editorial content? Um, when you come on BuzzFeed, it's very clearly marked as, mm -hmm. as such. It says featured partner in the background. It has that sort of Google yellow that anyone who has used Google in the past, which is everyone who's ever been on the web, recognizes as, as an ad. It's also very clearly marked that it's by the brand who, who is sponsoring it. Um, you know, we, there's very little interest for us in confusing people about those two things. Wouldn't be good for our long-term prospects to have our readers confused about what's an ad and what's not an ad. Certainly not in the interest of, of the brands that work with BuzzFeed to have a confusion there because they've paid for that content. They want people to know it's an ad. Um, I think that people, uh, you know, especially online, are very used to sharing ads. A lot of YouTube videos are commercials that were made either for the web or for television. They're very entertaining. Um, and if the creative team at BuzzFeed is doing their job, the same thing happens with our work. Surely a lot of um, advertisers are very keen to have their ads to describe disguised as editorial copy. Um, I mean... They certainly are in other parts of the media. I, I always wonder about that. I mean, they, they want to, they, they have a message that they're trying to get across, and if it's, if it's not clear to the reader that what they're reading has a message to it, I don't see why they would be interested in it. You know, there's well, this great the example. Trying, trying, trying to get ads and trying to get copies, um, mentions of their product into editorial. Well, and they I, feel that that has a far greater effect than the, ad, the ads themselves. Um, I, I think our job is to make good ads. You know, ads can be good. They can be interesting. They can be funny. Um, I think we have zero interest in, in running someone's message just sort of hidden within something else. We really want to make something that's creative and interesting. So you don't take product placement. You don't take money to put... No. no. One question I had, uh, you mentioned Facebook ranking news higher. You also mentioned that BuzzFeed, in a way, is seen as a, I guess, a leader in the digital space in terms of um, story formats. I guess the result of those is a lot of us scroll through a Facebook feed now and we'll see more and more lists of things, lists of this, lists of that. Is there a risk that other media organisations following that format will start to kill the listicle format in a way um, and are you looking at other media organisations that all use similar formats? How often do you refresh and think, well, maybe this format isn't working anymore? Maybe we're looking at new tools, new ways of telling a story. Yeah. And how often, I guess, crystal ball time, are you seeing other formats that might be on the horizon now? 
Um, I think the, the web is kind of constantly, as I mentioned, constantly evolving. I think that we're very wary of getting pigeonholed into only being able to create one style of content. Um, it would be bad for us, also bad for our readers, because I think they might get you know, potentially tired of a certain format. So the editorial team at BuzzFeed is, is constantly trying out new things. And you know, we, we also do just regular news articles. That is also sometimes the best way to tell a story is just a great headline and five or 600 words about the topic. Um, we're, we're totally fine with that. We just like to have a, a broad set of tools at our disposal. Um, so recently, you know, quizzes have been very successful for us. I don't see a world in which we're gonna do news in a quiz format, um, but I don't think that it's impossible. If anyone's gonna do it, it's gonna be someone on the BuzzFeed team. Um, yeah, we're, we're very, we pay a lot of attention to that, that ecosystem and are trying to always constantly push ourselves. Uh, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Marcus Strong from the Sydney Morning Herald. Just a question to you about accuracy and accountability. Because there's a, a sort of a, a merger between entertainment and information uh, in the way you present uh, uh, your site, uh, what's your policy on uh, printing uh, re retractions or, or, or so on? So, for example, earlier you had the, the, the funny joke about Earl Grey tea and Karl Marx, of course. Karl Marx never said property is theft, that was Proudhon. I, I, I expect you won't issue an, uh, uh, a correction on that, but what is, your, what is your policy on corrections and accountability and that sort of thing? Um, we take that very seriously, I think. In, in a lot of ways, when it comes to news gathering, BuzzFeed is very traditional. Obviously, getting things right and owning up to them when you've not gotten them right is key to that proposition. So, I mean, our, our corrections policy is, I think, very similar to a lot of other news organizations. If you find something wrong, we run a correction on the, on the site and make it very clear what piece of information was wrong and what the accurate, the accurate piece of information is. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a very interesting policy in the sense that it's, it's not very different than many of our colleagues, but it's certainly very, very important. Um, the, one of the other things that BuzzFeed does a lot of now, and I think this is true for a lot of news organizations in the digital era, breaking news moves very, very quickly. Um, and because a lot of breaking news is happening in some way on a form of social media, it's also a lot of erroneous information. Um, a recent example for us was um, a picture during the, the hurricane in New York City that was you know, totally photoshopped and, and, and wrong. I think we ran it on the site and didn't call it out at first. We didn't know that, no one else did either. We're starting to see that part of what our mission is uh, journalistically, when there's breaking news, to try and very, very, very quickly sort out for people what is fact and what is fiction, because that's a very difficult thing to do online. I have a question from Twitter. Um, from Kate McKenzie, who asks, do journalists need to be trained differently for the digital world, and how can universities help to bridge the gap? Let Kath answer that, because she's worked in newspapers and, well, so is Melissa. Well, well, so I, you all have, but yeah. Kath has edited both <laughs> sorts. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the basic skills of journalism are always gonna be the same, right? You, you have to verify a story, find a story, check a story, talk to a source. Um, when to go with it, when to hold back, when to wait. I mean, all of those things um, are the same. You, you, you still find stories in the same way, but you know how to write them, um, when to write them, um, what format to do it in, whether to do it as a list, which may be the best way to do it, or as a news report, or as a video, or as audio, or as just as a, a list of tweets, or you know, there's loads of different ways of telling stories now, which is why it's so much more exciting time to be a journalist, in my view, than it was 20 years ago when I started. 
Um, so it's a combination of old school methods with new school techniques. You use the Q&A quite a lot, don't you, with uh, someone sitting in your office talking to the audience? Well, we had you doing that, Paul, yes. <laughs> no, we, we <laughs> I wasn't just thinking of me. That's how I knew, though. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, yeah, there's, there's so many different ways of telling stories now, you know, and, and you, you try and think about what's the best and most interesting way for the reader to hear about this. I mean, I, I think there is a difference, having, having worked in both or in all of these various places, but certainly working for the Power Index and Crikey, you would have to produce something very, very quickly, and you'd have to find an angle and deliver it within 40 minutes or an hour. And so you'd have to be very careful about getting it right, much more careful than normal. You're really flying on your own a lot more. You don't have time really to consider, and you normally have to go for just, you have to pick an angle rather than try and do the whole story. So it certainly is a, a, a different skill. It's a different sort the of skill. The other thing is if you get it wrong, you, you, if you're wrong, you have to confess Yeah, if you're it. wrong, you confess and you and confess not, quickly. And, and not mind fine. being called out no, no, on no, it no, and fine. not be, you yeah. know, and sort of... Um, be accountable for the calls you've made. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, journalists should be trained to do is to be a bit more, thi bit more thick-skinned. Um, journalists are traditionally very thin-skinned. When you start writing for digital papers, you find yourself, papers, not papers, digital sites, you find yourself very quickly called out on stuff, or, and you need to be able to cope with that. And, you know, you get a, quite a lot of abuse. You can get a lot of abuse. So you need to be able to cope with that too. That's something journalists never really had to cope with. You should just go to the pub and complain. <laughs> we'll do that. I think that the Twitter question asked, um, you know, you just have to be, and I noticed this having gone from the print media to digital um, a few, uh, quite a few, a few years ago, just the, the, the physicality of, of building a story. I mean, the, you know, the, the method of building stories, of you know, being really a self-publisher but within a big organisation. Yeah. I mean, you know, we sit there, we absolutely build our stories from top to toe. Then, of course, an editor, you know, looks, looks over it. But th those sort of skills obviously have to be absolutely part of um, uh, the university curriculum. You, you have a new policy at News, don't you, of engaging with your audience in the sense you have to post, um, maybe it's just a print journalist, but you have to post links to Twitter. Yep. And you then have to see how it's going and you have to report on how it's been received. Well, what we, I mean, what we all do... And you're sort of constantly watching it throughout the day. Absolutely. What we all do, once we have actually written our story, we will tweet it, usually on our own Twitter account. Often the news.com.au Twitter account may retweet it if they feel it's, it's worthwhile to retweet it. You then obviously have a, uh, a page, you know, our, our desktop is our homepage that is telling us, like everyone, how many people are on that story that moment. If it's going through the roof, sure. I mean, you, you might then write an adjunct to it or you might just, you know, beef it up even more. But we are constantly, as, as we all are here, 24-7 knowing how many people are on a story any moment of the day. Yes. About sharing, um, and I guess um, for um, BuzzFeed, the question is um, uh, uh, well, uh, about uh, how much um, the sponsored content gets shared compared to the uh, straight editorial content. Um, and then for the rest of the panel, how important sharing is for your overall traffic? Um, when, it, when it comes to sponsored content, um, the biggest difference, I think, between the sponsored content and regular editorial content is the, the platform that we give to our editorial content. We have a large Facebook presence. We have a very large front page traffic now. Um, so a lot, of, a lot more people are going to see that story initially seeded. In a lot of ways, what advertisers on BuzzFeed are paying for is that initial seed traffic, how many people are going to see it. 
Um, and I think those, I think there's a, there's the ratio there is very, very different. So I, I can't actually totally compare the two, um, but occasionally it does happen that, you know, one of our sponsored stories is doing as well as one of our great pieces of editorial. It does, when, when our creative team really makes something funny, and they often do, people love to share it in the, in the way that they would uh, a normal piece of editorial content. I was very interested to see, Scott, that you had 75% traffic from, direct from social, mm -hmm. because for us, to your question, uh, it's much less than that. It's um, at maxes out at 15% for us at the moment on news content, so which is actually quite high by Australian um, digital media standards. Um, it, that is absolutely significant for us and bigger than SEO. Um, for us, though, what it means, and, and I think Scott totally nailed it in, in going through his myths for me. The only one I didn't agree with was your, the depiction of the portal search um, social thing as a continuum but we probably don't have time to take that up. Um, but the, the, the reality there is that social as a measure of value is incredibly useful to editors. So just clicks on a page are not so useful. Yeah, you need them to keep your engine going, but as a measure of value, how many people chose to share that, put their personal brand against it, that, you know, it just shows you the way. That's where you should be heading. Anyone, anyone else burning to ask a question? Yes, one here, another one back there. So you've got Mike, have you already? Yes. Yep. Yeah, hi, uh, Glenn Frost from the PR Report. Uh, my question is to Scott as regards to your uh, brand-funded articles. Are there any companies or organizations that you wouldn't uh, do deals with? So, for example, tobacco uh, armaments companies, that sort of thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely have a policy on, on that. I think you nailed, nailed two of them. I don't know if there are other, there are other categories. Same, the same policy as Facebook and Twitter, so there are certain categories that are just no-go. Two more we've got time for. Yes. Uh, we need a mic here. These two ladies here, so we can take them one after the other. Um, hi, this is a question mostly for Scott, um, but also I think for everyone else on the panel. Um, do you differentiate between uh, people who come to and share your content specifically within Australia or in other territories where you're doing editions like this? Or is it just kind of you're keen to um, gain more across all territories and not sort of so worried about where you're succeeding? No, we're very, very interested in specifically where people are coming from. I mean, you know, because so much of our editorial content is tailored to a particular identity or to a particular location, that's very, very important to us. But for the team here, for Simon and his team who've just started in Australia, the, they're going to be measured just on the, the, the traffic that they're getting here. So looking at those, the segments uh, across the globe for us is, is super important. There might be some surprises for you there, though, because one of the things we discovered, I mean, obviously, at my aim is to grow audience in Australia, but what, one of the things that surprises is how much the Australian content we've created has been read around the world. So whether that's Australians around the world, and there's lots of them, or people interested in Australia. You know, I have friends in the UK saying, God, I know so much about Australian politics now. How did that happen? And I go, that's because of me. Um, so, you know, and, it, and that's really exciting and something we didn't kind of, that wasn't why we came. That was why we did it, you know. So. Are they feeling better as a result? Oh, or? yeah. I mean, who wouldn't <laughs> want to know about it? And uh, last one. Yes. Scott. John. Um, my name is Linda Vignani, I'm a freelance journalist. I'd like to know, you, you do a lot of trivia, in my view. Um, how can a site like yours seriously think that you're competing against newspapers like The Guardian or New York Times? 
And how do you cover serious issues like climate change in between all the trivia and the cat skating and things like that? I just, I just really disagree with the notion that you can't have both. Um, I think that humans are interested in both. Uh, there's a metaphor that our founder, Jonah Peretti, uses, the Parisian cafe, that the idea of someone sitting, reading Sartre at a, at a cafe in Paris, uh, a cute dog walks past, they pet it, they enjoy the dog. They don't stop being human at some point during that interaction. Those are both totally valid ways of being in the world. So, um, you know, if the cat lists and, and GIFs aren't your thing, that's great. There's plenty of other content on the site. The way that we're able to think of ourselves as competitors to established news organizations is by hiring really talented journalists and giving them the freedom to do their work. Um, and we have a lot of those now at BuzzFeed. That's the majority of the investments that we've made on our staff over the last year and a half. So um, it, it doesn't maybe take up as much as the mind space of a lot of people that, that our cat lists do, but there's a lot of excellent, very solid, thorough journalistic work that's happening at BuzzFeed. We do, we do cover climate change. We have, um, we have a reporter in Cairo and Nairobi and Istanbul and Moscow now. We're, we're growing that segment of our site. We're still a very young news site. But that's where a lot of our investment and a lot of the future at BuzzFeed is. Okay, everyone, that's all we've got time for. If you um, want to ask more questions, but we're too shy to open your mouth, you can buttonhole Scott or any members of the panel, I suspect, while they're having a drink. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the panel. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.